You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Well, next week, June 21st, we will be back here together for our first worship assembly. And I just want you to know how excited we are about that, how we're planning and preparing for that. And of course, those plans are tentative. We have prepared a video clip to let you know how I'm going to feel next week coming back. Okay, so I told you that's how I will feel. That is a very good description, a very accurate portrayal of how I would feel. But it's going to be on the inside because Chris is clearly not practicing COVID safe practices. This weekend, you got an email about some of the general guidelines we will be doing where we will all be wearing masks and we'll be maintaining a six foot distance and we will be doing our best to help people remember, hey, are you feeling well? Are you feeling sick? And if so, please go ahead and stay home. Those that are in the at-risk populations should probably think twice about what their participation level is. But that, that video helps get a sense of what I'm feeling on the inside. What was he doing with that guy in the trash? Why, what was he throwing him away? Well, that is our procedure for someone that doesn't wear a mask. He will end up in the trash. No, I'm, I'm totally kidding. But there will be some things that are different. And I know that you expect that. Communion will be a little different. We'll have individually packaged communion so that it can be safe. You'll be carrying it. Our offerings will be different. We have installed uh, offering boxes near the exits of our sanctuary to make it easier for you. And of course, you can still contribute online through the Church Center app or through our website or through your own bill pay. But you can just expect things to feel a little different. And you can expect maybe some more information later, but just know that even singing may be a little different. Well, that Chris Farley uh, tape also helps lead us to our topic for tonight, which is death. Yes, death. The day of the Lord. Death is not a topic that we want to discuss. People avoid it. Avoid talking about their own death. But I want to keep, keep, keep even death still on the lighthearted side. Four guys were together and they were talking about death late one night. And it got to a question, someone kind of like me, what do you want people to say at your funeral after you die? And the first guy to speak up said, well, I want him to say he was a man of the community. He's a good coach, good with the kids, definitely a good man out in the community doing work. Another guy thought, spoke up and said, well, I hope they say that I was a really good dad, a good father, someone that was good with my family and, and a reliable worker. Well, third guy spoke up about what he wanted said at his funeral, and he said, Hey, look, he's moving. I mean, as you get a sense, when we talk about our death, we're hesitant. We don't want to talk about our death. We're fearful of it. But death can be a motivator for how we live. One more story for you. Late one night, a man was walking through a cemetery. He was looking at gravestones. Things got dark. And he backed up and without realizing it, fell into a grave that had been dug for a funeral that was to take place the next day. 
So he's trying to get out of this seven-foot grave. He's trying every corner, and he can't get out. He calls out. No one can hear him. No one's around. And he finally just slinks down in the corner of the grave. Well, then he hears a hunter, some rustling. And this farmer is possum hunting through the graveyard. Possum hunter doesn't see the hole. He falls into the hole. Well, the, the farmer doesn't know that there's another person in the grave. And he's trying to get out. And finally, the man decides to make his presence known. And he reaches out and touches him on the shoulder and says, you can't get out of here. Well, he did. The farmer got out. No problem. Instantly. From fear, he jumped out of that grave. Death can be a strong motivator. Not only do we avoid death at all costs, but when we think about our death, it begins to change how we live our lives. And in times like we're in, where there's fear and worry and anxiety, sometimes people dust off passages that look at the day of the Lord, and that's what we're going to do tonight. Paul doesn't really help put us at ease by talking about the day of the Lord because his metaphors that he chooses are not all that encouraging. This is 1 Thessalonians 5. We'll just read the first three verses to start here. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you don't have, need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say, there's peace and security. Then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and there will be no escape. Now I have to scratch my head and wonder why Paul and the Holy Spirit choose some of these images because thinking about the second coming of the Lord, I don't often associate that with a thief, an unwelcome guest, or in a time when we say everything's going great, that destruction comes. Very negative image. The closest thing to a positive image is this labor pains one. And most pregnant women are going to say the labor pains are not a positive image. And the only thing that's positive there is if everything goes well, we have the joy of new life. Well, the point is that it's coming suddenly and quickly and without expectation. We need preparation for that day in advance. And I think it's important to mention this because in times like this, people begin turning to Revelation or to Daniel or Matthew 24 and begin trying to predict and talk about, could this be the end of the time? Could this be the preparation for the day of the Lord? And that's not what Paul is about. This is not about timing, not about predictions. Because even the Son of God does not know when the Son will return. Even discussions about rapture, which come from this earlier chapter, chapter 4, talking about being snatched up, or the Matthew 24 passage where two people are in a field and one is taken. A lot of Christians, some Christians, think and believe in the rapture, but that's a fairly new teaching, the last 100, 150 years. And it's not one that's really clearly articulated in Scripture. I mean, after all, which is preferable, to be taken or to be left? So we can put all of those things aside, guessing about dates and speculation, prediction about timing, and set that back. Because Paul's point is about being prepared, being ready 
Let's look in verse 4, where things kind of shift. But you, beloved, well, that's already a shift from labor pains and destruction and thieves. But you, beloved, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of light and children of the day. We are not children of the night or of darkness. So then, let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep in the night. And those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and of love for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So here we get drawn into an idea of not being passive or complacent. Paul's trying to encourage them with these words that they are children of light and children of the day and they are to be prepared and equipped. And he talks about this preparation and equipping in two ways. One, if you uh, glance down in verse 6, is through three words. That you'll stay awake, keep alert, and be sober. Now, I hear echoes in that. Echoes of the Garden of Gethsemane. Where Jesus says those very same things to his apostles to get them to pray with him to stay awake through the night. The intent here is to focus in on preparation, like the parable of the ten virgins, or even like when we were discussing this leading up to Easter, this gathering of the Garden of Gethsemane to be prepared and to be alert. Well, these Christians, and specifically us, 2,000 years later, might have lost a little bit of our vigilance in looking for the return of the Lord. That may not be a calendar reminder in your phone. It's not something that we often think about every day. But it's easy for us to be drawn into this sense of complacency rather than welcoming Jesus into our lives. Not just waiting for Jesus to come in the clouds, but having Jesus come into our living and our way of being in the world. You know, we could be drawn into some complacency, some on this virus, too. As more and more restrictions are lifted, as we're able to move about a little bit more freely, we could think, ah, no big deal on the virus. But it's still out there. It's still something that we have to pay attention to, to practice good hygiene, some things that we've learned about washing our hands and maybe avoiding handshakes, putting our coughs into our elbows, maintaining this six-foot distance. We don't want to be drawn into a sense of complacency even as we are more free to move about. So we get this idea of being alert and awake. I'm also uh, tending to hear people wistful at this time whenever you think about the end of the world when you get frustrated and you're just ready for things to go back to normal and you wish, well, I just wish the Lord would come. I wish he would judge the earth with fire. And there's this kind of escapist mentality. And it's dangerous. If we begin to live in kind of this escapist mentality, we might begin to say, well, that's just something for the younger generations to worry about. I'm going on to the sweet by and by. Or... You know, there's really nothing that I can do to change things. Or, 
even if I do just this little thing, what difference is it really going to make? It's going to have no effect. In our desire to get to normal, it's easy to be somewhat passive, to think it's just business as usual, that everything's fine. And I think that might be some of the reason why tensions have escalated, where people want to go back to normal, but what really is normal? I think maybe some of the differences come down to a difference in what constitutes normal. I mean, if you have a job, if you live in a home or own your own home and have a comfortable living, then you're okay with things going back to normal. If you don't own a home, if you kind of have to move around, if you are currently unemployed, or if you've been harassed regularly because of the color of your skin, or pulled over unnecessarily by a police officer because of the color of your skin, then going back to normal may not feel exactly great for you. It all matters about our place, our expectations. Now, just a side note, all of my black friends have stories of when they've been harassed or when they've been pulled over. All of them do. In fact, this is a time when we can ask our friends to tell us those stories. You see, it's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of where we live, our station in life. What's norm for one race might be different for another. I mean, we can look at these norms in terms of money and wealth or education or, you know, even of ethnicity. So let's just talk about New Mexico and let's do it in terms of money. If we were to look just at New Mexico pre-COVID, New Mexico has a 20% poverty rate, meaning 20% of our population live below the poverty level. Now, the state that I grew up in ranks higher on that with a lower poverty level. Colorado is ninth at somewhere under 10. Uh, my wife is from Texas. They're somewhere in between at 37, per, or at, yes, at ranked number 37 on the uh, poverty level in the United States. Well, if we again take New Mexico and look at not just that poverty level, but different races, blacks have a poverty level of 23%. Hispanics, 24%. If you're native, it's 33%. And if you're white, it's 12%. So if we talked about going back to normal or going back to the average of 20%, for whites, that would be quite alarming because that's an increase. For Hispanics and blacks and natives, that would be a decrease, something that they might welcome. Do you kind of see what I'm saying? That our sense of normal is affected or even skewed by what we think of as our position in life, what our experiences are. And to call for a norm of going back to some pristine time, whether that's the 1950s or the 1800s or even 1776 is not always what we would want to do. Paul calls us to be awake, to open up our eyes, to begin to listen to one another, to ask questions, to begin to understand one another and maybe not even have to defend our own position. In fact, perhaps your heart has been stirred. You're thinking about 
all of the racial tensions that are going on. There could be some books that are very uncomfortable to read that you might want to pick up, like Tanishi Coates, The World Between Me, where he talks about stories like the one where his father had instructions for him about how to act about a police officer, a common discussion among African Americans. Or you could even pick up the book by a white person, Tim Wise, who writes the book White Like Me, an also very difficult and uncomfortable read that takes us into somebody else's position. White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo is one that I've not read, but one that I've been hearing about. It's a more recent book. And if you want to go back further, I highly recommend Frederick Douglass, who lived as a slave in the 1800s. Read about his spiritual, his autobiography and his journey from being a slave to being a free person. Or the great Martin Luther King, Character and Community. A read that, it's an essay, it's not long, is still relevant even today, stretching over these years since the 1960s. Now, I'm not necessarily endorsing these books. They're not religious books, and nor would I you know, want to say that, oh, every word is wonderful, but we're due to look and, and hear from folks that we don't often listen to, to begin to get a sense that's more awake and alert and attentive to the lives, the lives of others. Well, that's one thing that Paul says here. We are wanting to be awake and alert and prepared. A second thing gets maybe a more spiritual look of how we can tune our senses to be alert, how we could have some spiritual tools. And he brings up faith, hope, and love. Now by now, you know that Thessalonians is the oldest document in the New Testament, that the, the document closest to the life of Jesus, close right around Galatians too. And it's wonderful to me to think about faith, hope, and love, this triad of Christian virtues that still has meaning today, being present in this book. In fact, we read about it in chapter 1. The work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope that shows up in verse 3 of chapter 1. You get the sense that this takes effort, it takes energy. That faith, hope, and love are not like a, an energy drink that we can swallow and it solves all of our problems. No, this is going to take some heavy lifting. These tools are worth embracing and learning from. Well, here in this particular passage, as we learn about loving others with the love of God, Paul gives us some props. He talks about them in terms of images, that faith and love are a breastplate. That's almost like protective equipment, PPE. And that hope is a helmet of salvation. Now, these are prior, these are not the classic uh, armor of God passages from Ephesians chapter 6, where there's a lot more. But do you notice that these are all protective equipment? This armor, this military equipment, is meant to protect the heart and protect the head. Even if you were to go to an Ephesians, there's more armament, but there's only one offensive weapon, and it's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. The only offensive thing is the pronouncement of God's Word. So this isn't about offensive weapons, about preparing ourselves for the end of the world, of getting on battle garb and charging out there to scare people 
into the kingdom of God. No, that's not what it's about. This is not nukes and bombs, join the kingdom of God, jets and planes, tanks. No, 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 no. This is a different kind of equipment that invites us into the life of faith and hope and love. Okay, so where have we come? We talked about the suddenness of the coming of the Lord and that it's not something that we can calculate or predict. We can set that aside. And then second, we've looked at how we could prepare ourselves to equip ourselves with an alertness, a sobriety, an awakeness. And the tools for this equipment are faith and hope and love. There's one more thing for us to look at, and it shows up in verses 9, 10, and 11. So let's read there. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, as indeed you are doing. God's intention is not our destruction. God's intention is not wrath and judgment on us. God's intention is our salvation, our healing. That's very important for us to realize. So we don't get to get caught up in scare tactics and using strong arm maneuvers to get people into the kingdom of God. Those would be false motivators. We are drawn and motivated by the death of Jesus to live our lives in a different way. Did you notice that in verse 10? I mentioned it last week. That our Lord Jesus, King, who died for us so that we might live with him. You remember the question that I gave you last week to help challenge and inspire and filter you to action? That if God acts like this, how am I supposed to act? If God acts through coming to live with us, and willingly dies at our hands, and shows victory over death in his resurrection, what does that say for me about the kind of life of love that I'm to live? I want to take that a bit further this week, because I think a lot of Christians view the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus historically. Yes, I believe that it happened. Yes, Jesus lived. Of course, Jesus rose after his death. I believe that. And we settle there. We camp out there in the belief that Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected. But there's more. There's taking this further beyond just treating it as a historical fact to living a resurrected life, of letting it inform how I think about others, inform the decisions that I make with my life, to begin to transform the way I treat other people who might have differing views from my own. You see, the resurrection is supposed to inform us, you, you and me, to be different kinds of people. We are being resurrected every day. And this newness of life is something that challenges us to the kind of life that's not fearful, like the guy who didn't want to die and was hopeful that at his funeral he would be moving or even the farmer, motivated by death to get out of that grave, 
who knows who was grabbing him by the shoulder. No, we don't want death to motivate us in that way. We want to be motivated to life change by the life of Jesus Christ. So it's not about us avoiding death or even wishing for death so that the Lord would come. It's about living with Christ. Prepared, alert, equipped with faith, hope, and love. Let's pray. God, would you please give us the strength to be your people, to follow you more closely, and to listen more attentively to others. Help us to be quick to listen and slow to speak, and even slower to become angry. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.